Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 Man, lot of brand. We're giving you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side. Swanson to first. Braves world champions. Braves and baseball talk. Straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. And hello and welcome to From the Diamond right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I'm Grant McCauley, live from the Kia Studios, coming to you after what was the conclusion of probably one of the most frustrating weekends of baseball you, I, or anybody else could think up, unless you were the Toronto Blue Jays. I'm guessing you had an awful lot of fun if you were. As for the Atlanta Braves and their fan contingent, this was a weekend to forget and we're going to get into all of it here on this edition of From the Diamond. Before I get started with that, and of course, the week that was for the Atlanta Braves, all kinds of things going on across Major League Baseball, and a really fun discussion we're going to have a little bit later about one of the most, I think, important historical aspects of the game. I want to remind you, as always, you can subscribe to From the Diamond to wherever you get your podcast. Make sure that you follow me on Twitter. I am at Grant McCauley. The show is at From the Diamond with an underscore on Instagram. I'm at Grant McCauley. Their show is at From the Diamond. You can like the show on Facebook and find all the useful links at FromTheDiamond.com for just about anything else I'm going to throw at you in this couple of hours here on a Sunday evening. Uh, Typically, when we're sitting down here, we're wrapping up a week. And for a club that has the best record in the National League, or at least which has had it for most of the season, you would think most of these weekends have been pretty good. And I guess you could go ahead and say that they have been. But there is nothing you can really say that is going to be in the neighborhood of good about what happened for the Braves against the Toronto Blue Jays over the weekend. Now, how did they get here? What went into uh, particularly the bullpen game they were throwing on Sunday? Well, we're going to have to go ahead and rewind this week to what was yet another big name landing on the injured list for the Braves. Of course, that would be Max Freed. The Braves ace for the second time this year is not going to be available to this club, and this time it might be for a number of weeks, if not a month or more, based on the fact that Freed's dealing with a left forearm strain And that puts, no pun intended, a big-time strain on a Braves rotation that had just lost Kyle Wright last week. So now you've got Wright, who could be out for up to a couple of months from what it sounds like, just from hearing Kyle talk about it this past week, another recurrence of the shoulder inflammation. We talked about this on last week's show. That was going to be a big enough void for the Braves. Now they don't have Max Freed, and now you start to see the depth of any club is going to be tested in ways that, you know, over the course of 162 games, you just hope that you have the depth that it takes to counteract some of these challenges in some of these valleys. And the Braves most definitely, and it's early in the season, we're closing in on game number 40 of the year, I believe. And so you're about a quarter of a way through the season. You're going to get these, you're going to have these tests, but they most definitely have to be feeling like they're walking through a valley or at least it's somebody came in and completely turned off the lights, particularly offensively on Friday night. Spencer Strider threw a great game. Well, Chris Bassett threw a little bit better game and the Braves were shut out. And lost the opener. Then on Saturday, they were unable to get the offense they needed in another loss. And then on Sunday, the Braves had the lead heading to the ninth inning. And their closer, right? So Iglesias, who has been roughed up in his last couple of outings, he blows the save. And all of a sudden, the Braves find themselves swept by the Toronto Blue Jays. And stop me if you've heard this before, but the Blue Jays, they have the Braves number. And they've had the Braves number since 2021 when they swept them in two separate series. These two clubs did not meet last year. But now the Blue Jays have swept the Braves 
in three consecutive three-game series dating back to 2021. That's a nine-game winning streak head-to-head, and you don't need me to tell you that that ain't good if you're the Atlanta Braves. If you're the Blue Jays, you got to be feeling pretty good about yourselves, and they should be because they are one of the better teams in the American League, and I think they showed a lot of the reasons why. But in conjunction with that or, or in, in a correlation of why these games all went the Blue Jays' way wasn't just, hey, the Blue Jays are so far and away much better team than the Braves. I think that uh, there's that old saying that you're never as bad as you are on your worst day, you're never as good as you are on your best day. It's probably somewhere in between. I, I think you could probably apply that to the Atlanta Braves. They're not as bad as they have played in some of these games, but you know we know as we start to kind of peel back the layers, you're going to find inside of that – Injury being one of the big reasons why the Braves are kind of destabilized right now. There's been some inconsistency as well. There's a couple of guys in the lineup that have been slumping. Of course, there are a couple of guys in the lineup that are kind of starting to find their stride. So you figure this kind of stuff is going to even out. And the Braves, who have been one of the best road teams in baseball, carried a 15-3 and road record into this weekend against Toronto, only to get swept in three consecutive games and in, in, a, in a way that until Sunday, you didn't even really feel like they were particularly competitive And that obviously is the kind of start to a road trip that you hope doesn't carry over to the next stop, which will be in Texas against the Rangers, who have also been kind of a tough team to start the year as well. It's going to be a challenge as the Braves are in the midst of this interleague battle against a bunch of American League teams. They took two out of three from the Orioles. They split a two-game set against the Boston Red Sox. All things considered, and and given the injury news and particularly the status of Max Fried, I think you'd take all that. But this series against the Blue Jays, at the very least, the Braves, they had a chance to take two out of three. Certainly should have won on Sunday. We're right there in it with Spencer Strider going you know, blow for blow against Chris Bassett, but the Braves' offense just was not able to break through on that day, and sometimes you're going to have those. And in the course of a 162-game season, and you may get tired of hearing this stuff, but I'm going to say it anyway because you don't have to say it when you're winning because nobody cares how it happens, but you're going to lose some games you're not supposed to lose. You're also hopefully going to win some games you're not supposed to win. The Braves have done a little bit of that in terms of the comebacks and a couple of walk-off wins. They haven't been as plentiful this year. Because the Braves just had not played as well at home as I'm sure they would like. But you think about what Michael Harris did Sunday a week ago when we were talking about you know this team. You had to be feeling kind of good about maybe where the Braves were trending. But this series against Toronto it certainly gives you pause. Because as I said on Twitter, and again, you can follow me at Grant McCauley, this was one of the strangest, sloppiest weekends of Braves baseball that I can think of in recent memory. And because this is a club that has an incredibly high standard, and by and large, you won 101 games last year, go to the playoffs again. You're a couple of years removed from winning the World Series. You got the best record in the National League rolling into the series against Toronto. This just doesn't feel like the kind of thing that should be on the board as a possibility. But unfortunately, baseball and the baseball gods perhaps had other plans for the Blue Jays and for the Braves in this series. So we're going to talk all about that. And of course, we're going to get into what the Braves rotation is going to do. Because as we saw on Sunday, again, the Braves are having to throw a bullpen game. I've gotten a lot of questions about this uh, just from different friends I've been talking to, from people on Twitter wanting to know, are the Braves really planning on doing two bullpen games through the rotation over and over and over? And of course they're not, and they can't for that matter. It's a practical impossibility if you're ever going to want to use your bullpen in a meaningful way. You cannot be asking them to cover 18 innings twice every turn through the rotation. That's just not going to happen. But on a night that Spencer Strider went out there and pitched his heart out in the opener and he's just not able to score, he can't win. Bryce Elder pitched pretty well in the second game, but again, the offense, other than Marcel Ozuna, two-run homer, was MIA. And then on Sunday, you jump out to a lead. Ronald Acuna Jr. leads off the game with a homer. Ozzie Albies has a go-ahead blast. You know, Braves have that lead into the ninth inning, and unfortunately the Blue Jays were able to walk it off and, and seal away or steal away the finale of the series to finish off that sweep. 
But as you look at what the Braves rotation is facing, yeah, we got a lot to talk about with Max Free being on the injured list, Kyle Wright being on the injured list, and the fact that neither one of them are going to be walking through that door anytime soon, that is most certainly uh, for sure. The Braves, meanwhile, still sitting in first place in the NL East, but all of a sudden as the Braves are going through a losing streak, the Phillies, with Bryce Harper back in the fold, they're going through a winning streak. The New York Mets have kind of faded back into the pack. We're going to get into that a little bit later as well. You know, as much as the Braves, you know, look at this weekend and can say this is a disappointment, I think the first month and a couple of weeks for the New York Mets could be filed as a disappointment as well. We'll talk a lot about them. And, of course, we're going to get into, I I think, you know, some of the pros as opposed to just the cons about what's been going on in the Braves lineup. But we got to cover both because – yeah, there's a big name in particular in this Atlanta lineup that's getting a lot of questions these days. He had a couple of hits on Sunday, but Austin Riley does not look like the same player hitting in the middle of the order that the Braves have seen the last couple of years. What is going on there? What are the trends telling us? Can he break out of this? Can you hit your way out of it when you're in an important spot in the Braves lineup? I think that's a, a, a very good question. And we saw on Sunday, as many people kind of wondered, how long is Austin Riley going to hit third for this club? When will they finally move him? Well, he bumped back to cleanup as Sean Murphy got the day off in the finale against Toronto. And Sean Murphy hadn't got very many days off, by the way. But Ozzie Albies hit third, had a key home run. Austin Riley had a couple of hits. Are we going to see this continue as we roll into Texas and maybe just take a little bit of pressure off Austin Riley, who has hit incredibly well in the cleanup spot? I don't know if there's a rhyme or reason for that, but it is what it is. And you just like to see him start hitting well, hitting the ball solidly and lifting the ball again. Those are all things that we're going to talk quite a bit about. But it's not just Austin Riley that's been – I think really scuffling over the past few weeks, you got to start looking at what's going on with Matt Olson. He has become, in a lot of ways, a three true outcomes hitter, much more so than the guy that I really saw in Oakland and then the guy that we saw last year at times. I mean, drawing those walks is a good thing. The strikeouts this year, though, they border on alarming. It's a lot of strikeouts, and when is he going to be able to make that adjustment? Because it's strange to see a guy that goes from, I believe, a 17% strikeout rate in 2021 with Oakland as he had a career year to a more than doubling that strikeout rate here in 2023. Something has to be going on there. And how long can you allow guys to hit in a couple of spots in the order where you need the production? Ronald Acuna Jr. continues to play at an MVP level. 28th career leadoff home run started this game for uh, for the Braves against the Blue Jays today. He found his way on base a couple of times. you know. But Ronald's not going to be able to do it all. He's not going to be able to drive himself in every single time. You've had great play from Sean Murphy. I think Ozzy Albies is having a very good year. I think Eddie Rosario, with this nice, uh, I believe, 10-game hitting streak now, has shown some signs. And don't look now, but Marcelo Zuna has gotten hot here in the month of May. And I know that the results this weekend, they are not what you're looking for, but you needed somebody somewhere in this lineup to step in and start to counteract some of the struggles that you're seeing out of a guy like Austin Riley. And unfortunately, a guy like Matt Olson, as they're hitting back-to-back in the two and three spots of the order. So it's funny because I've been saying this to all the hosts today. If I would have told you at the beginning of the season that come May, the pitching would be a bigger concern for the Braves than the play of Marcelo Zuna, what would you have said? It would have been a low percentage play for me, that's for sure. I mean, as you look at the last couple of years of Marcelo Zuna, and we'll get into this much more later, and there's really no reason to talk about the struggles as much as you can talk about the success at the moment, or at least we got to put them both in context on each side of the scale. You need all the help you can get offensively right now. Marcelo Zuna has been part of the solution and not part of the problem for a while. Getting Orlando Arcia back makes a big difference for this club as well. He stung some balls on Sunday, didn't have a lot to show for it. But if there's anything that really kind of typifies what was the frustration that we were dealing with on Sunday, 
It was the play of the Atlanta defense and the misplays, the collisions, the drop balls. I mean, this this is not a Braves team that I've seen a whole lot of. That happens once in a series. All right, well, it's going to happen every once in a while. It happens once in a game. Okay, well, it, it kind of is what it is. But this was a day where just the frustration and the sloppiness for the Braves, I think, all kind of reached a critical mass as they were walked off by the Toronto Blue Jays. we got a lot to get into on today's show. Coming up, I'm going to chat with Stephen J. Nesbitt of The Athletic. We're going to dive into one of MLB's biggest initiatives that appears to have stalled out, and that's incorporating the stats of the Negro Leagues into the all-time MLB register. Really fascinating topic for later on. But when we come back, we're going to discuss everything going on with the Atlanta Braves pitching staff, the injuries to Max Fried, to Kyle Wright, what's going on with this Atlanta offense as well. We'll get into all of it here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more From the Diamond. Welcome back to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday evening. And as we record this show, for those of you listening to the podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcast and on the Odyssey app, this is the aftermath of what was a disappointing Sunday in just about every way, shape, or form. You wanted to see the Braves pitch well. No, that didn't exactly happen. You want to see the Braves hit well. Well, that, that was okay, but not, you know, maybe a couple of missed opportunities here or there, but you scored five runs. Uh, if you want to see the Braves playing some great defense on Sunday, unfortunately, I don't know what was going on at Rogers Center. I don't know if just the, there was a special wind, if we're talking about the guy that used to operate the big fans at the Metrodome in the 87 and 91 World Series to get the breeze blowing for the other team, if he got hired on for the weekend in a part-time role. But whatever the case, the Braves had some trouble when the ball went up in the air. You had a couple of different collisions. You had four balls that got dropped that flat out should not have been dropped. I mean, it was one of those days that you just – you shake your head at it because you can't really explain it, and you certainly don't expect to see it again tomorrow. That was the kind of series that we're talking about here. And I was chatting with my producer, Dom, in between the segments here, and you know I, I tried to lay it out there as much as I could in the first segment about the frustration that goes with losing a series like that, particularly for a team that's as good as the Braves are and have been and have been for a number of years now to go in any place and get swept and just not look like they're playing up to the standard that they've set and the standard that you need to play against a good team like the Toronto Blue Jays there's just no two ways about it. Losing games that way is not going to make anybody feel too good, and I can promise you uh, for the Atlanta Braves, uh, they're going to want to flush that one as quick as possible because they got to get back to work against the Texas Rangers in a three-game series that starts on Monday night. I'll get into that a little bit more later, but I think the story of the week outside of obviously the results up in Toronto, which, again, there's just no two ways about it. That's about as, as bad as I've seen the Braves play in a long time. But now they're also having to embark on a series of weeks and or months without Max Fried in the rotation. And without Kyle Wright in the rotation. And I think for, for Max, he may be able to get back a little bit sooner than Kyle Wright will. And both of these guys are going to be shut down from throwing for a number of weeks. If you're just kind of you know needing the 30,000-foot view, uh, all the imaging was done for Wright on his shoulder. All the imaging was done for Max Fried on his left arm. He's got the forearm strain. And, of course, it's the inflammation, again, for Kyle Wright that, uh, that has him on the injured list. But all of those scans came back clean. But it, you're in the middle of a season – and the doctor is going to prescribe time and rest and treatment to try to get through this. But that means that as they stop throwing altogether, that you're going to have to ramp back up again. And I know Brian Snitker had referred to this as kind of a, a mini spring training that they're going to have to have. They're going to have to start from square one again. And when you start thinking about that and the timing of it, every fifth day is one less start that you have from Max Fried and from Kyle Wright. And how are the Braves going to be able to patch this work or patchwork this rotation, I should say, in order to get past the loss of the Cy Young runner-up last year in the National League and Max Fried, who very much 
I think could be in the Cy Young consideration and conversation any year. And a 21-game winner from a year ago that's made five starts for you this year already but hasn't picked up a win yet. And those are not things that I would have thought coming into the second week of May that I'd be talking about. Uh, but, yes, here we are. And that is kind of what baseball will do for you and to you uh, as things go along. Now, these bullpen games, like we've seen this week, neither of them played out particularly well for the Braves. I think for a couple of different reasons. I mean, you get walked off on the road. That's one type of loss. Just weren't really able to keep the Boston Red Sox under wrap on Wednesday as you try to cover all nine innings with your bullpen. You're just not going to be able to sustain that and do that. And the choices for the Braves are you try these out because you have the off days, which Atlanta did on Thursday. So Wednesday, you could kind of empty out the bullpen, and you got Spencer Strider throwing on Friday. You feel pretty good about your chances of being able to line that up. And you also had an off day on Monday. So you haven't really taxed that bullpen incredibly. But you go through this series on the other side of the Texas Rangers, and the three-game set that you're going to have in Arlington, you'll have an off day on Thursday. Then you got the Seattle Mariners, Los Angeles Dodgers, and Philadelphia Phillies, and Oakland Athletics. And let me just move the Athletics over here a little bit further along the table. They're not quite the ilk of those other three teams, but you're not going to have a day off for quite a while, uh, for nearly three weeks when you get on the other side of the off day on Thursday. So how do the Braves figure out a way to get through this with their rotation? And the answer is, you already know them, but I'm going to lay them out there anyway. You have Dylan Dodd. You have Jared Schuster, and you have a comeback bid of Michael Soroka that I think everybody to a man wants to see. But is the timing right? So let me talk about Dodd and and Schuster first because these are two guys that got opportunities right out of the gate in spring training. They threw incredibly well. Schuster made the opening day roster. Dodd was in the rotation with right down in the first time through. Picked up his first major league win. You know, For Schuster, it was kind of some up and down, some control issues that he had that kind of kept him from it really, I think, being able to help the Braves out, cover some innings. But after what he's gone and done down in Gwinnett, where he has looked pretty good, would he get that up next opportunity to just come up and help you cover five innings? I think at that point, and it may sound like a low bar, but trust me, if you watch these bullpen games, you can understand all of a sudden how important it is to have somebody come in and maybe cover that first five innings. If Jared Schuster could come in and do that, five innings, two runs, five innings, three runs, six innings, three runs, whatever it may be, you'll take that. And you can make them interchangeable, too. It could be Jared Schuster, could be Dylan Dodd. It can also be this other gentleman that we've talked about quite a bit and that we're going to continue talking about because this was you know, somebody who was supposed to be a big part of all the winning that the Braves have been doing, but we have not seen him pitch in a major league game in nearly three years. And, of course, I speak of Michael Soroka. We are two years and nine months since the last time we saw Soroka start for the Braves. He was our opening day starter in 2020. He was an all-star in 2019, runner-up from Rookie of the Year, and just one of the better all-around pitching prospects that the Braves have developed in really any time recently, most certainly, over the, through the course of the rebuild. You really just felt like Michael Soroka was going to be in the middle of the, the good things going on for the Braves, and he has been, unfortunately, on the comeback trail for nearly three years. Twice torn Achilles, had a little bit of um, inflammation in the arm last year when he was down in the minor leagues. That kind of truncated his season, comes to spring training, has a hamstring issue. That's a setback. But he has been starting for Gwinnett. On a regular basis, for the most part, though, they've been giving him that extra day of rest. But he did start on four days rest over the weekend here. So, or this past week, I should say. But you're still looking at somebody who's covering about four innings and somewhere between 75 and 80 pitches on the average. And that's not quite where the Braves needed to be. Tongue-in-cheek, I would say when you bring him up to the major league level and you think about what the Braves' defense is normally, except on Sundays in Toronto, you might think that it could be a benefit to have the big league defense behind him, and perhaps it will be. But I'm just going to leave that there because this ain't the day to talk about the big league defense, I don't believe. 
But you need Michael Soroka missing bats. You need him doing the things that he's capable of doing. And from a stuff perspective, looking inside the StatCast data, average fastball velocity looks good. All of the pitches, spin rate-wise, look good. But he's just given up a lot of hits and a lot of singles, for that matter, uh, over his last four starts uh, for AAA Gwinnett. He ran into some trouble in the first inning, did surrender a three-run homer in his last start, only went to four innings. But the final three, he set down nine of the last ten men that he faced and really started to look a little bit like Michael Soroka. Could he carry that over into another start from, for Gwinnett and then be ready for you when you come back through the rotation the next time? And maybe you can figure out a way to patchwork this thing with Jared Schuster and with Dylan Dodd the next time through? Perhaps. But I'm also looking at what are, what are the Braves doing on Tuesday in Texas, which sounds like a WWF event, and I believe it was about 20 years ago, 30 years ago maybe. Either way, what are the Braves going to do in their rotation on Tuesday in Texas? I think that's uh, more so the question because they've got to figure that out. Charlie Morton's going to start the opener of that series, but you're going to have to have somebody come out or you're going to run the risk of doing this bullpen game, you know, spinning this roulette wheel and seeing what you get. For the most part, until you got to the ninth inning, I think you would have taken it. I think you certainly would have, especially when you had a 5-4 lead heading to the ninth and you want to have one of your most reliable relievers on the hill, and Rysel Iglesias should be that guy and needs to be that guy. I don't know if I can stress that enough. I don't want to overreact about two outings out of Iglesias thus far, but he got roughed up the last time, and he got walked off here in Toronto. Really, it's anything that could go wrong for the Braves in the series felt like at some point in the three games it went wrong. I'm going to throw it out there because it's my show and this is the way I feel about it, but these are three of the most atrocious strike zones I've seen in a long time. And if they want to go ahead and start building the robots, then let me know. We can start a GoFundMe if that's what the problem is. I don't know, but that's, that's an aside. And I don't know that you can really spend a whole lot of time complaining about the strike zone when you play as sloppily as the Braves played on Sunday. It was all part and parcel to a bigger problem, but it, it was an adventure, seemingly every pitch. I don't know that I have felt the same level of just – Really? That just happened? Really? That's what's going on? That play happened? That, that's a strike? It just was one of those days. So just to let you know, everybody watches baseball more or less the same way. It's 162. Some of us regulate a little bit differently than others, and that's fine. But it was definitely uh, tough to watch all around uh, over the weekend in Toronto. So what are the Braves going to do in their rotation heading through, you know, through this stop in Texas? And then what are they going to do just without – Having Max Fried and having Kyle Wright for a number of weeks, they're going to have to figure that out. I don't know where Dylan Dodd and Jared Schuster will fit into this, but I believe that they will. And I believe that Michael Soroka is going to be a name that the Braves are going to call on at some point. But I think in having a, this discussion with uh, a number of other you know, media folks out at, uh, out at Truist Park this past week, do you really want to risk pushing up his timetable just because you have this hole at the big league level? You've waited two and a half years to try to bring this guy back the right way. You want to, I think, follow through on it the right way, but I know that unless or until they win a baseball game again, and I promise you they'll win another game this year, you know, everybody's going to have a theory about what needs to happen in order to get the Braves back in the win column and keep them in the win column on a regular basis moving forward. And Michael Soroka could be an answer to that question somewhere. Is it right now? Is it, you know, this coming week? Is it two weeks from now? I think we're all going to find out together moving forward. In addition to what's been going on with the starting rotation, which is going to have an effect with what's going on in the bullpen as we continue to discuss that here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, you know, you have to talk about what has gone on for Atlanta's bullpen, which is going to be asked already quite a bit when you got to cover two bullpen games, no starting pitcher to help you out. You're going to run through some of your, you know, your long relievers and some of your leverage relievers just to try to cover those innings. 
And we've seen one of Atlanta's big leverage relievers have a lot of trouble this year. And, of course, I'm speaking about A.J. Minter. This guy was the Braves' best reliever. If you don't believe me, go back and look at his last year's numbers. I know Kenley Jansen was the closer. I know Kenley Jansen has looked great for the most part this year. He's had a couple of hiccups in save number 400, which, by the way, congratulations to Kenley Jansen on save number 400 on Wednesday over at Truist Park. A big deal for a kid that grew up a Braves fan and pitched for Atlanta last year. But if you watch the Braves bullpen in 2022, A.J. Minter was kind of the glue guy that came in. If you needed these three outs in the seventh inning against the toughest hitters in that lineup, hey, give A.J. the ball. If you needed it in the eighth inning, he could do that for you too. Come this year, the ninth inning has been a totally different story for him, and I don't really know what to put you know, my finger on other than obviously command, location. I mean, those are big things. You don't have to walk guys to be having trouble with locating. And I think he has had some trouble leaving some pitches over the plate, and I think he'd tell you that. But as it is, you go back to April 21st. These are the last 11 appearances for A.J. Minter. He is 1-5. That's a reliever with a 1-5 record. That ain't easy to do. 13.5 ERA because he's allowed 15 earned runs in 10 innings. 17 hits, only four walks in those 11 appearances, but a couple of home runs that have bit him at some bad times. And, you know, the, the question becomes, as you look at A.J. Minter just in a vacuum, this is the worst that he has pitched, the worst stretch of his career. And it's coming at a time in which he is being asked to get some of the most important outs for the Atlanta Braves whenever that bullpen door swings open. I mean, we're not using A.J. Minter down 6-1 to one in a blowout game in the fourth inning. This has come in, up one, down one, tie game, whatever the case may be. This is a guy you need to come in and get those big outs for, and it just hasn't been happening this year. And so the question becomes, I mean, as you try to sort it out, how exactly can you do that for A.J.? Because you... You, you have to find some kind of replacement for somebody that was supposed to be one of your main setup men. You can't just option guys down to the minors and leave them there until they figure it out. I mean, it worked in 2021 for him, but I would say this stretch he's going through in 2023 is, is far worse than what he was dealing with in 2021, but it's worse in a different way because back in 2021, it seemed to be more of a control-related issue. He just really wasn't able to get ahead and attack hitters and pile up the strikeouts and do the things that he has normally done. This year, it's been big hits, home runs, big innings against him. The cutter has not been where he wants it to be. I would say that's the difference in you know walks and, and control or command problems and, and control problems. I think it's been a, a command issue for that pitch, and he's got to figure out a way to get it done. And I know I'm going to talk about this here in just a few minutes uh, with the impact of the pitch clock maybe on some of Atlanta's relievers or really any, any pitcher for any team, honestly. Is the pitch clock something that contributed to this? Because A.J. was uh, very methodical in between pitches. Is this something that's kind of crept in there? I know he wanted to use that changeup a lot more this year. I don't think that that's been a pitch that's necessarily yielded in the results he wants either. But when that cutter's not working, even with a 96-97 mile-an-hour fastball, if you're not really able to locate, put it where you want, hitters are able to start eliminating pitches, and they're able to do damage when you come over the plate. And I think that that's been what has happened uh, by and large for A.J. thus far this year. And it's been, I'm sure, one of the many things that you look at with what's gone wrong for the Braves this year that has been probably one of the most frustrating and hardest to figure out because you looked at the bullpen and thought, this is a group that's going to be a strength for this club once you get Rysel Iglesias back in particular. And you've got A.J. Minter. And you've got a number of other relievers that should be able to come in and give you some quality innings and get the big outs that you need. It has not always played out that way. But I would also say that this bullpen has been asked to do a lot in the first month of the season. 
and you've had, you've pitched a lot of guys out of what I would say is the normal order that you would normally want them in or the roles that they were designed for. And A.J. Minter, he may have – he has. He has certainly worn it more so and worse than just about any other Braves reliever has. So that's going to be something as we go through the summer. you got to see A.J. Minter turn this corner because the Braves certainly need him to get back to normal. You're not going to be able to pull off two, three, four trades in the middle of May to fix all that ails you, that's for sure. When we come back, we are going to talk about what's been going on six weeks into the season and how the Braves are adjusting to these new rules for the pace of play. I spoke to a few Braves this week, including Charlie Morton. You're going to hear from him next as From the Diamond continues here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios, as always, here on a Sunday evening as we wrap up the week that was in Major League Baseball and, of course, for the Atlanta Braves, and we look ahead to the week to come. But looking back over the last five, six weeks now, we've had this opportunity to kind of get to know what Major League Baseball is going to look like. Look, there's still nine guys on each side, no pitcher versus hitter, three outs an inning. We, we know all those things. But Major League Baseball did change some rules coming into the 2023 season, and we talked all about them throughout the course of the winter. We saw them a little bit in spring training, and you kind of wondered, is this going to be different in a good way? Is it going to be different in a bad way? Is it going to be unpredictable? What exactly is it going to be? But one thing that you had to figure out, whether you're a fan sitting in the stands or you're a player trying to you know, navigate these new rules or tweaks or changes to your everyday routine these changes are going to be here and you're going to have to get used to them one way or another. So I had the opportunity to write a piece for the Marietta Daily Journal this past week and I got to chronicle what exactly is going on with these new changes for the Atlanta Braves through the first five, six weeks of the season. Now, it's important to note that even though the Braves have run into a bad weekend in Toronto, you got to look at overall. Atlanta's sitting on the best record in the National League. They've had it for most of this year. It's been far more good than bad and they've had you know better road series most certainly than the one they had in Toronto, but you know, this is a club that, by and large, has not really had to battle at all against the new rules. If anything, we know the Braves have been fighting injury. But since it was an adjustment, it's always worth revisiting. Because as you talked about, what do you think it's going to be like? You try to project how it could change different players' games. I had Jeff Passan on the show a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about all the injuries that are going on in Major League Baseball to start the season Is there a correlation? Is there a causality between changing the rules and making the pitchers speed up and pitchers ending up on the injured list at a kind of alarming rate? Who's to say that's exactly what it is? There's really no way to know, and I don't think anybody's looking to point their finger at that, but I don't know that it can be ignored, and we'll continue to gather the data and see how things play out. But aside from that, everyone had to figure out how to change their cadence if you're a pitcher. You get the 15 seconds with nobody on base to deliver a pitch home. You get 20 seconds with someone on base. You get the two disengagements, which means you can throw over with a runner on base. But we've even learned some things about disengagements going through this season that have been, I think, kind of interesting. And I talked to one Braves reliever who you'll hear from in just a minute a little bit about that. But, you know, the hitter gets that one timeout, but he has to be in the box with eight seconds to go on the pitch clock, alert to the pitcher himself. That was something we found out on the very first game of spring training. You're going to get called for that. If you're in the box, but looking down, we saw it at the end of the very first Braves spring training game when it was strike three with the bases loaded in a one-run game in the ninth inning. We haven't seen it happen in the regular season, but it just kind of let us know. If you weren't really paying attention or thinking there was going to be some kind of leeway, there's not. These umpires get a buzzer. They get an alert tone that lets them know if they're looking around and don't see what they're supposed to, they can call that infraction. Be it on the pitcher or the hitter, it's going to be called. Whatever the circumstances are, Major League Baseball wants this rule enforced, and it has, in fact, been enforced. 
But as you do look over, what, 35 to 40 games into the season, every team is close to 40 games now. It's only about a penalty per game, and that's for the two teams in each contest. So you're not seeing a lot of these penalties. We haven't seen a ton of them for the Atlanta Braves. We've seen them here and there, but it hasn't really come up in knock on wood. Any of the major situations where you would say, how did you not know what you needed to be doing there? How could that be called? What was the umpire thinking? What was going on there? We haven't had any of these crazy open for interpretation kind of debates about calls that have changed the game just by themselves. I mean, in baseball, there's always plays in a game. There will always be plays that you'll look back on and think, wow, what if you gotten that call? I can think of a certain strike three a couple of days ago that would have really helped Spencer Strider out in his start against Toronto. But hey, it didn't happen. And we're not here to talk about robo-umps, at least not yet. But to bring it all kind of back in full circle here, the conversation that I enjoyed having with some of these Braves players was, how have you seen these adjustments take place for yourself? And how do you feel like the game is trending now that these new rules are not necessarily quite as new? The first guy I caught up with is Braves reliever Kirby Yates because he has been called for a pitcher violation and he's going to tell you all about that in a moment. But I just asked him what it's been like getting used to what is the new way of pitching with this clock. I think it's blended in a little bit better, like a little bit. You know, I think you still have to be conscious of it. Probably everybody's kind of their internal clock's probably gotten better with it, understanding like just how much time you have and you know if I'm running short if I'm got time without having to just directly stare at the clock the entire time you know what I mean I think I've gotten a little bit better of that where you've gotten into a routine where you've you've been able to I guess consistently get a certain time without having to rely on looking at the clock you know so it's definitely gotten better now with that adjustment in mind Kirby was quick to point out that He got called for a violation, which meant that he kind of needed to go and revisit the rule book a little bit because he stepped off with no one on base. And apparently that's a problem. You know, I got caught in Miami, not necessarily knowing the rules. I thought we had an opportunity to step off with nobody on base, which we don't. You know, I think in that aspect of it, if the hitter gets a timeout, maybe the pitcher should get a timeout, you know. Just because, you know, sometimes we'd like to step off and gather our thoughts and catch our breath and stuff like that. So we're not able to do that. It's a little different. But, I mean, I think overall, I think MLB's kind of accomplished what they wanted to accomplish. Now, it's not just the pitch clock when we talk about these new rules. We're seeing Ronald Acuna Jr. leading Major League Baseball in stolen bases, and we know steals are up across the board. Over the last 25 years, stolen bases had dropped in Major League Baseball by 27%. You could tell that teams were starting to get, as I mentioned in my article for the Marietta Daily Journal, more risk-averse. They did not want to have runners being thrown out on the bases. They just didn't want to take the chances anymore. Now, you can look at analytics, and obviously that's part of it because you're trying to figure out everything you can about making the game work for you in different ways. But I like the stolen base. I think Major League Baseball likes the stolen base. I'm not sure pitchers love the stolen base, so I asked Kirby a little bit about the bigger bases, the fewer disengagements, and how exactly pitchers are getting used to a little bit more of the running game. Look, there's not a whole lot we can do to kind of control the running game anymore, you know? It's basically, it's pretty simple. It's very times and and pick when you throw over. Outside of that, there's nothing really more you can do. So we're lucky that we got a guy behind the plate in Murph that has an absolute cannon, and he kind of neutralizes it by himself. So that helps a lot. But I mean, in the grand scheme of things, there's not, you know, I haven't tapped into something to where it's like, yeah, this is how you can hold runners a little bit better and yada, yada, yada. I mean, it's, there's not a whole lot of options. So those are the insights of Braves reliever Kirby Yates. But as you look at Major League Baseball evolving over the course of years, 
you think about pitchers who have been around for a while to watch some of these changes slowly start to evolve, particularly over the last decade. I wanted to catch up with somebody that could give me that kind of insight, and I felt like there was one place to go. And that's veteran right-hander Charlie Morton, who's the elder statesman of the Braves pitching staff, along with Jesse Chavez, those two men breaking in right about the same time. But I know that when it comes to talking about pitching or comes to talking about baseball in general, you're always going to get some really good insights from Charlie Morton. Here's my conversation with Charlie about how some of these rules changes have affected Major League Baseball in his eyes. As somebody who's been around this game and pitched for a long time, I'm wondering after about six weeks or so of these new rules, have you felt any differences or is, have things started to kind of morph into some version of the new normal? I wasn't really worried about it in the beginning because I think my tempo was okay, but every now and then I'll catch myself where I'm, I've only got a few seconds left to come set and throw. But... Other than that, no, not really. I mean, I've tried to limit how many times I throw over mm-hmm. to first, but really I think it just becomes more about coming set, making sure you have a little bit more time to just hold the ball. Because for runners, that's that's what makes running hard, Yeah, is the, the hold, the changing of the tempo, and they don't know when to run, as opposed to a righty trying to pick a guy off, yeah. which doesn't really happen very often. Yeah. I was talking to Kirby a little bit because he got a violation down in Miami. I don't think I realized this, and let me make sure I understand this, but if there's nobody on, there is no disengagement. Is that part of the Yeah, I didn't know part that. Of the rule? I don't Because it seemed like that's what he got called for. I thought you could step off. I'm going to dig into it, but I just I noticed yeah, how when heated he, he was yeah, about I it. Yeah, I was surprised because when he yeah. told me what had happened, I was like, well, that doesn't seem right. No, it doesn't because the hitter gets one. The hitter gets one. It's, but it, for a hitter, though, I mean, I guess you might catch yourself having the wrong mentality or thought. Sure. But from a pitching standpoint, there's several reasons why you might want to step off, whether it's you agreed to throw a pitch that you really shouldn't throw or you feel like there was a misunderstanding with the catcher maybe you didn't see the sign and now you're questioning that you don't want to cross a guy up because someone could get hurt so to me i think a pitcher should be able to to step off yeah because of uh, at least those are a couple of valid reasons why mm-hmm. but i mean the spirit of the rules i think are good are, are well-intentioned i think to try to make the pace better for everybody not just the fans but you know i think there's some kinks in there that hopefully there's some discussions and, but i mean I'm, I'm glad that we tried i'm sure. glad that we're trying to do it so we can actually see it implemented, and then you could objectively decide whether or not it was a good idea. Yeah, it's really interesting to see because you know, going back to you know, like I grew up in the '80s, you know, guys stole 100 bases in the '80s. We had the Cardinals, I think, might have stolen 400 bases as a team mm-hmm. one year. That's just a wild thing to think about yeah. in today's game. But we're seeing more stolen bases. The pace of play was obviously quicker back then. But you know, the game, like anything, evolves, and it's changed a lot yep. since since they put fences in the outfield and since they put the mound at 60 feet, yep. since they dropped the mound in 1968. So. I guess what I'm saying or asking is change is always part of the game. So as a pitcher, a player, whatever the case is, you always, I guess, have to be kind of open to the fact that it's coming whether you like it or not. Yeah, I think when you started to see digital elements on the field, it started to feel like it's kind of creeping in. Mm-hmm. It felt like it was being packaged. The game felt like it was being packaged and with a bow on top. And it wasn't for the things that I loved about the game as a fan growing up. That's not to say that 
as a society, culturally. Sure. We won't change, but I think that's what drove it. I don't think it was necessarily the game, but I could be wrong. But I think people, it's like, is it nice? I think it would. I think it's really nice. Like the Braves have to have a 720 start. If it's got to be 720, it can't be 640. Right. 655 or seven or 705. It's got to be a 720 start. Hey, maybe we could get more people into the stadium watching the games from start to finish. Yeah. Maybe we can get some families that have kids that are in school on a school night. Maybe they can come out to the park now and actually stay for a little bit more of the game, if not the whole game. And people that are at home. You know, maybe they can actually stay up and watch the game and feel a bit more engaged because it's moving quicker. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I don't know. I'm not the arbiter of what people find attractive, like in in a sport. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah. But I know that growing up and being a fan of the game, so much so that I tried to make a career out of it. I have some romantic thoughts and feelings about baseball that have nothing to do with how long the game takes. That was something that I never even thought of. So I think it, objectively speaking, yeah, is it better to have a more efficient, time efficient game for all parties? Probably, yeah. But I also think it's a reflection of where we are societally, that we have less time to spend just sitting watching a game and we are able now to entertain ourselves with our computers our phones and our ipads and we look for different things we value different things than we did in the 70s 80s and 90s and ultimately the market will decide if baseball is sustainable as is that's Braves starting pitcher Charlie Morton weighing in on the rules changes and I guess the evolution of the game. As you heard in that conversation, and I really appreciate Charlie's time, we had a longer conversation off mic than we did just discussing those rules changes, and it was always great to catch up and get the insights of someone who is about as thoughtful as it gets with Major League Baseball. So that's a peek inside how a couple of pitchers have adjusted to the pitch clock and the ever-changing evolution of this game that has been brought on by the new rules. Thought that would be a pretty fun topic to discuss as we wrap up this week and look to charge ahead and the Braves continue their road trip with a stop against the Texas Rangers up next. But when we come back here on From the Diamond, we're going to take our trip around the big leagues with some of the biggest stories in Major League Baseball from the week that was. And it comes your way next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Taking a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley with you on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, live from the Kia Studios as we begin Hour 2 of the show and we take our look around the big leagues. And for those of you who were watching the Atlanta Braves play baseball over the weekend, you might appreciate a focus on some other teams and some other things that have been going on because there's plenty of misery to go around. And the misery of the New York Mets always seems to get people fired up. So why don't we start with what's going on or what's not been going on well Uh, for the team up there in New York, because while this may not be the weekend to cast stones from our glass house as the Braves again did get swept by Toronto, this has been a really frustrating start to the season for the New York Mets, to say the least. And you can look at the standings, it could give you a pretty good indicator as to why, because yes, the Braves, again, did lose the series uh, against the Toronto Blue Jays, but if you look at the overall, the Braves still 10 games over 500, still with a commanding lead in the National League East, a five-game lead over the second-place Philadelphia Phillies. And then you've got the Marlins, then the Mets in the standings. And if you'd asked me at any point this year, particularly once we started getting into the month of May, 
Uh, what do you think about the fourth place Mets? I would ask you what exactly went wrong, who's hurt, and and what has you know transpired to take a team that spent that much money and that won 101 games last year and put them under 500 heading into you know the what the 10 to 10 days to two weeks leading up to Memorial Day. And remember, Memorial Day last year was kind of I don't know, it's like D-Day for the Atlanta Braves. They finally were able to launch their full-scale invasion of the NL East and you know come out victorious in the end. But you know, putting all that colorful stuff aside, you know, the Mets, they're certainly capable of going on a run. They're going to have to get healthy in order to do that. That's been a big question for Justin Verlander, their big offseason acquisition. You have seen Max Scherzer as well have some problems uh, staying healthy. And has he been as effective this year? That's also been an issue for the New York Mets, among many. Uh, one of the big things for them is that they are having trouble scoring runs. The Mets have already been shut out seven times this year. If you're scoring at home, they were shut out eight times all of last season. This was supposed to be a lineup that knows how to not just manufacture runs, but can hit home runs. It was supposed to be a well-rounded group. That simply has not been the, uh, been the case. They're already struggling with the Washington Nationals playing a doubleheader on Sunday, which I'm going to get to the weather issues in just a minute. But coming into this series, the Mets had already lost five consecutive series. Now, if you think the Braves going up to Toronto and getting swept by the Blue Jays is, is bad, you, the next time the Braves lose five consecutive series, I, I will be happy to open the phone lines here, and we'll talk about all the reasons why. And I don't open the phone lines. You may be aware of that. But we'll talk about all the reasons why. I can promise you that. And we'll get some feedback from the audience. Uh, that, that aside, if you look at the Mets, offensively speaking, you know, losing five consecutive series, that offense is going to be what you're pointing at more times than not. But the pitching has been suspect as well. But this is the first time that the Mets have lost five consecutive series since 2012. So it's been over a decade since the Mets have kind of gone through what they're going through right now. Their offensive ranks just may not surprise you. 24th in Major League Baseball in runs scored. That ain't going to get it done. Just over four runs per game. 21st in home runs, just 41 of those as of right now here on a Sunday evening. 19th in OPS, right around 700. And there's kind of this whole clump of teams within about five thousandths of a point that could be the difference in being 19th or 24th in Major League Baseball. So when I tell you that things aren't going well offensively for the Mets, you're not going to find a whole bunch of stats that say yes, but. There is no yeah, but with this one. They're not scoring runs, and that's a big reason why they're under 500 right now. And the pitching isn't exactly carrying them either because they've got an ERA over 4.5. That's 21st in Major League Baseball. So if you're allowing over 4.5 runs per game, and you're scoring just over four runs per game, that would be a pretty quick and easy way to d- determine how you'd be a 500 or just below team, and that's exactly what they are. Uh, so we know there's been some frustrations happening for this club. And I would say that Saturday was a different kind of frustration for the New York Mets, and one that the Braves aren't all too unfamiliar with, because if you'll think back to 2017, the Braves and Nationals had one of the most bizarre non weather delays that I think I've ever seen. They were sure that the forecast was going to be dire and that they needed to cover the field. And there was a light rain for a very brief period of time. Then the two teams sat around for three hours waiting for the actual rain to show up, and it never did. So you had a three-hour non-rain delay. I remember Ender Enciarte, the former center fielder, tweeting about it. I've never seen a non-rain delay. This is crazy. It is pretty crazy. Well, there was some rain, most certainly, on Saturday. I can say that. So bravo to making progress and having rain on your rain delays or weather that actually precipitates. Precipitates? Either way. Having a rain delay. We'll go with that. We'll go with it for the play on words, if nothing else. But I want you to take a listen to the SNY broadcast led by Gary Cohen, of course, Ron Darling, Keith Hernandez, part of this. Because let me just lay out to you that the Nationals and Mets played less than three innings. They played about 35, 40 minutes on Saturday before the game was put into a rain delay that lasted for four hours. 
They started at 4.05. They were delayed at 4.43. No updates were provided until they decided to suspend this game for the following day. And I'm going to get into why that's a big deal, but let's hear the SNY broadcast crew for the New York Mets trying to unpack how exactly you can sit for four hours and not resume a game. And we just got this information that today's game has been suspended and will be part of a split doubleheader tomorrow, which is, that is unprecedented to have the completion of a suspended game part of a split doubleheader. So after a galling nearly four hours of waiting, including the last half hour where absolutely nothing was happening in terms of trying to get the field ready, that all the work had been done, now they make the decision to play a split doubleheader tomorrow with the resumption of the first game at 12.35 and the second game starting at 4.35. And what I'm assuming is that for the last half hour, that was the communication between the Nationals and the Mets and Major League Baseball to get permission to do this, which as far as I'm concerned has never been done before, that you're giving a piece of a game to the fans as part of a split doubleheader as opposed to playing straight through and making it a single admission. A a piece of a game has now become a full game for the fans that uh, uh, choose to attend. I've I've never heard of anything like this ever happening. And and to wait four hours for these folks, uh, you saw the booze, you saw unhappiness. You can't hear how loud and how unhappy they are yet tonight. Absolutely. And for me, to take this long to come to a decision, it's just and make these people wait out here without any clue. I don't know. That, uh, to me, is unconscionable. It's really a shameful episode on the part of Major League Baseball to permit this to happen and then to come to this kind of a resolution to charge fans twice tomorrow rather than playing straight through with the completion of suspended games. So that'll do it for us here with the Mets trailing the game one to nothing in the third inning. They'll be batting with runners at second and third and one out in the top of the third when the game resumes tomorrow at 12.35, and then the regular game will be played at 4.35. Truly unbelievable. That's from SNY, the Mets uh, television home, and that was Gary Cohen, Ron Darling, Keith Hernandez. These are some guys that have been around baseball for a long time. And when you've never seen that, and I tell you, you go to a baseball game, you might see something you've never seen before. I'm going to go ahead and stipulate this is not the kind of thing that you want to see. <laughs> this isn't what you're talking about when you say no. that? No. no, I was thinking maybe you see that unassisted triple play that you've never seen before. Maybe you see you know, somebody hit four home runs in a game. Maybe you see a perfect game. Those are the kind of things I'm talking about. This, this is not the kind of thing uh, that I'm talking about. So this game was suspended in the third inning. That announcement was made that it'd be completed as part of that split doubleheader. Now, if you don't know the difference between a, a split doubleheader and a traditional, you know, you're charging, or whoever had tickets for Saturday's game can come into Sunday's game for the completion of it, and that's it. Then you got to leave the ballpark, they clear it, and then a whole nother set of admission, or a whole nother set of tickets gets you into the second game of the doubleheader. So you're not even offering the fans who already had to sit through this you know, the opportunity to stay for the whole doubleheader. So the whole thing's a debacle, I'll put it that way. And the Mets did end up losing that game, but the fans really ended up losing, if you think about it, because anybody who was unable to attend the makeup game, which, by the way, by having that crazy debacle of a rain delay, cancellation, postponement, whatever, on Saturday, now you're telling these people that you just had to sit out in the rain for four hours? Hey, why don't you come spend your Mother's Day with us? But not all of it, only a portion of it, so you can hang out on Sunday, and then you can leave. I just I've never seen or heard of anything like that, and I can imagine, and as you heard, the Mets broadcast wasn't too thrilled about that either. 
Uh, let's hear from a couple of very interesting highlights from out in the desert. We don't talk about the Arizona Diamondbacks a whole lot. We don't see them a whole lot here. The Braves play them a couple of different times a year. But if you've been watching Major League Baseball for the past few seasons, you're probably familiar with Zach Gallen, and you should be familiar with him this year because he's one of the best pitchers in baseball. And it might not surprise you that he's, once again, one of the best pitchers in baseball because he finished fifth in the Cy Young voting last year despite the fact he missed a little bit of time. He had himself a very nice season. And if you were looking at, hey, who are the top, you know, seven, ten pitchers in baseball, you're going to go ahead and probably have Zach Gallon on your list if you're paying attention. Well, apparently some voters were not, uh, as far as Cy Young is concerned. So far this year, Gallon 6-1, and one, 235 ERA, 70 punch-outs among the league leaders in 57 and a third innings. He joined Foul Territory TV this week and revealed that, it act- that he actually keeps track of the baseball writers who did not vote for him in the Cy Young last year. And this is just my type of petty. I want you to take a listen to Zach Gallon. Adding fuel to the fire, bolts and more material, whatever it is. Am I consciously thinking about who left me off the ballot when I'm out there? No, but when I need that, you know, maybe that extra 1% that day or whatever it is, it's definitely not far out of my thought process for sure. I got a screenshot on my phone. It's in my photo album for sure. How about that? Not only do, do I know, did I write down a list? Did I make a mental note? No, I took a screenshot. I keep it on my phone. And if I just happen to need just a little bit of extra something for somebody maybe not paying as good of attention as they should have to, I don't know, just overall pitcher statistics when you're voting on an award that's supposed to, I don't know, recognize the guy with the best statistics. If you get 10 spots on your ballot and Zach Gallon wasn't on your ballot last year, you just weren't doing a very good job of voting. I, I really can't understand that. And one of the things that comes through in voting now, not to get completely down a rabbit hole, but there's more transparency because these things do get released now. And we've talked about this a lot with the Hall of Fame, and we're not going to do that today. But the transparency, I think, is necessary in order to hold people accountable for not literally, figuratively mailing it in on these awards at the end of the year. Because some of this stuff matters to some of these guys because they have contract incentives for where they finish in certain awards, if they win certain awards. I mean, bottom line is it's important. You should do a good job of it. And if you're in charge of voting or get the honor or the responsibility of voting, you should do a better job of it. But for Gallon and for a player, you just don't hear it too often that they are just up to their elbows and trying to figure out what exactly went wrong with where they finished on the ballot. But again, just my type of petty. He did not name names, by the way, and you can check this out on Foul, Ter- Ter- Foul Territory TV and I recommend that you do. It's a, it's a great show. Scott Braun of MLB Network is on there. A.J. Pruszynski, the former Brave, also a part of that show. And this Gallon episode overall was very interesting because if you know him from Arizona, then you understand that he got traded there by the Marlins for Jazz Chisholm, which was a cool prospect for prospect trade. That doesn't happen too often. Obviously, Jazz is a big deal for the Miami club, and Zach Gallon, a big part of the success of the Arizona Diamondbacks as they are kind of putting together a nice little season out there in the desert. But Zach Gallon was originally traded from the Cardinals to the Marlins in the Marcelo Zuna trade along with Sandy Alcantara. So now think about Marcel being traded not just for Sandy Alcantara, but also being traded for Zach Gallon and Sandy Alcantara. That is crazy to think about, particularly if you've been watching Marcel for the last couple of years. That seems like a bit of a stretch. But uh, Zach Gallon went into a whole diatribe about what he thought might have led to his inclusion in that trade from the Cardinals to the Marlins, and to say it was interesting it would be selling it woefully short. So go check that out, Foul Territory TV. Uh, you can find that on YouTube. Uh, one other little tidbit from out in the desert. Uh, we have Christian Walker, who was involved in perhaps the most bizarre ejection that we're going to see all season, or really any season, 
because it looked like he got tossed for applauding an umpire for making the correct call. I want you to take a listen to the call of this, and then we're going to unpack what may have actually happened. Didn't go that time either. Didn't offer. And it's 3-1. and one. Alfonso Marquez. The appeal to first base from DeJesus said no. Christian Walker can't believe it. Here comes Jeff Bannister for an explanation. I think Alfonso Marquez overruled the no swing call at first. Christian may have been ejected. He was barking, you'll recall, after his last at bat. Walker struck out in the bottom of the fifth inning and spent the entire walk back to the dugout barking at Marquez. And now looks like he's been tossed from the ball game. Now, admittedly, when I saw this video on Twitter and a couple of other places, I thought, why in the world are you going to eject a player who's just standing there on the top step of the dugout just clapping along for his teammate and for a check swing, which is what it was. Walker wasn't at the plate, mind you. He was in the dugout. But what had happened was Christian Walker, he struck out in his previous at-bat. He wanted an appeal. The appeal did not go his way. He barked at Marquez his whole way to the dugout. So when the appeal did go the next hitter's way, the next inning, and he decided to clap along with the game, well, uh, Marquez said, I don't like your sarcasm, and I'm not going to look at you for the rest of the night. And Christian Walker was, in fact, done. So uh, that is not my type of petty. Zach Gallen most certainly is. But that is our look around the big leagues for this week here on the show. When we come back, we're going to get into what I think is going to be one of the most fun discussions uh, that I've had thus far on the show. As Stephen J. Nesbitt uh, will join me. He's of The Athletic, and he wrote about one of MLB's most important initiatives and why it seems to have really stalled out. When will MLB get the Negro League statistics into its official record book? It's been two years since they announced that they would, and we're still waiting. That is next here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley as we continue on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Back to Grant McCauley for more From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday evening. And while we like to take a look around the big leagues, I wanted to take this to a whole nother level and to a league that has been recognized as of a couple of years ago as one of the major leagues. And I speak, of course, of the Negro Leagues. Now, what has that process been like to take all of those Negro League greats and their statistics and integrate that into Major League Baseball's record book? Well, as the case may be, it has had its challenges. So I wanted to bring in Stephen J. Nesbitt of The Athletic, who wrote a fascinating article that I read this week that the Negro Leagues are major leagues, but merging their stats has been anything but seamless. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for joining me today because we're going to discuss what I think is one of the most interesting historical developments in the game's long and storied history. And I guess we're still in the process of developing all the things that goes with it. Yeah, it's a process that was such a celebrated decision by Major League Baseball in December 2020 to announce that they were elevating seven Negro Leagues from 1920 to 48 to Major League status. And along with that, as they said that day, they're going to be making the statistics from those Negro League players, which numbered almost 3,400. Just like they're Major Leaguers, by definition, they are also going to be Major Leaguers in the official record. And so the process was already underway. Major League Baseball spoke in that in that announcement about how they had, you know, worked with Seam Heads, which is the really the most complete database that is out there for Negro League stats, and we we'll look forward to, you know, working with them further. And so we've really had two years, two plus years, almost two and a half of silence. And in conversations with some Negro League family members, they had asked me if I had any updates, and I said, well, honestly, no. Uh, but let me go <laughs> wow. see if I can find one for you. So that's sort of where the genesis of the story was talking to those family members who all thought that. It could really be done by now because we yeah. hadn't been given much guidance 
from Major League Baseball and how long they anticipated it taking. So people sort of chose their own conclusions. And most mm-hmm. of those conclusions were, well, we have a good database here with seam heads. And I can imagine you can make the decisions regarding what counts and what to include rather quickly. Yeah, I want to parse through a lot of that, obviously, because there is just so much uh, the interesting layers and nuance to this story, including MLB's decision to go ahead and announce that this was what their intention was. And that happened way back in December of 2020. Uh, For background, and I know, Stephen, you're going to help me flesh all of this out in much greater detail, but MLB recognizes Negro League players from 1920 to 1948 in those leagues you mentioned as major leaguers. And that's something we learned about as of December 2020. Baseball Reference followed up by beginning the task of uh, porting over some statistical records, adding those to their books starting in 2021. Obviously, there are a lot of different layers to the record keeping from many of these different Negro Leagues, which we'll get to. Uh, But you wrote this article for The Athletic this week. It's entitled, The Negro Leagues Are Major Leagues, But Merging Their Stats Has Been Anything But Seamless. So I encourage you listening out there to check this out. I'll certainly link it on Twitter. And it's all right there in the title, obviously. So tell us a little bit about the process you went through. You mentioned some family members of Negro League players, and I'm sure, obviously, a lot of different people who have been, uh, I guess, championing the cause of the Negro Leagues for so long from a historical perspective, uh, probably very interested to see this process begin to play out and to get it across the finish line. Yeah, certainly. I had spoken to some family members for a story I did on the Negro Leagues Family Alliance, which is a new development. And in it, there's a 95-year-old former Negro League player. I had a chance to speak to uh, Ron Schoolboy Teasley. And those families and Ron as well said, you know, it would be amazing if he were still living when he could see his numbers. He didn't have a lot of numbers, but what they could find put alongside uh, major leaguers. And uh, it seemed like it was was fully possible. But in those conversations, it seemed like they had lost their patience a little bit with Major League Baseball and how long it was taking. And so when this process began to reach out and I truly didn't know how much of a process it was going to be. I thought they would perhaps say that, yeah, we've made some progress. We're still a little ways away from doing it, but you'll hear more soon. But it was clear from the first conversations I had with with Major League Baseball that things had changed and uh, had not been yet revealed to the public that things had fallen through with seam heads and that they have to take a different direction. But the more I looked into it, the longer I realized it was going to take. Yeah, and let's go ahead and dive into that because there are a lot of things about this story that really jumped off the page to me because here we are, as you said, two years after this announcement, the process of acquiring and logging the statistics is still very much in what you said in the article is kind of the first phase. And it appears there's been a lot of difficulty in getting the different statistical databases literally on the same page. So what are the hurdles or steps that need to happen in order to make substantial progress in integrating the Negro League stats into the true Major League Baseball stats, as it were? The simplest path remains and would have been for Major League Baseball to acquire Seamhead's data. Baseball Reference has acquired that data. Fangraphs has acquired that data. However, it's a little bit different because they've licensed the data that's already available on Seamhead's website. However, Major League Baseball would need full access to the game level stats to verify things. They would need things that are not already available. So I can't tell you what the financials of those conversations were. All I can say is that neither side really cares to talk about it. But what I was able to gather was that it wasn't a financial thing. It wasn't something where Major League Baseball could have just thrown some more money at this. But it was more of a question of control of you know how this is going to be used, who's going to have a say and how it's implemented, the deliverables that would be expected. Mm-hmm. Seamheads is a group of researchers, of volunteers who have put a decade and a half into this. And so in speaking to other researchers, they certainly understood why, from Seamheads' perspective, they might not be willing to sort of hand over all of their you know life's work that they've done in the Negro League sphere. And so... You know, I don't know the particulars of what their negotiations were, but it seemed like there were enough issues that come spring training this year, they met one last time and deal didn't come out. 
Major League Baseball decided there wasn't really a path forward there, and they're going to wait for RetroSheet, which is still really building out its database itself. will probably take another five years. Yeah, I do want to get to RetroSheet in a moment. We're chatting with Stephen J. Nesbitt. He writes for The Athletic, covers Major League Baseball. There you can follow him on Twitter, at Stephen J. Nesbitt. He wrote this great article this week about getting the Negro League statistics, I guess, in line with Major League Baseball statistics, which was something that MLB came out a couple of almost, well, at least over two years ago now, saying was going to be a big priority for them to correct an oversight that had been going on for far too long. Uh, with Elias, which is obviously in charge of Major League Baseball statistics keeping, seam heads that you mentioned, they're unable to reach this agreement. I'm not really sure how, I, just from the outside looking in, how MLB can truly accomplish this goal or where it could really turn to find a lot of the alternative research or honestly why they wouldn't want to make things work for some kind of partnership. But as you mentioned, in these negotiations, I'm sure that nuance doesn't even begin to describe how exactly to get this thing over the finish line. But for those who may be thinking that this is just a simple matter of bookkeeping, could you explain a little bit about the complexities of taking on a project of this size and scope? Because to say that, again, that nuances are in there would probably be selling it woefully short. Yeah, this certainly is nuance. And I truly wish I could answer some more of the details of why things didn't work out, because it almost seems just from the outside that Team Heads was a database almost tailor-made for this situation, right. right? They had worked so hard. It cannot be understated how their work played into Major League deciding to elevate the Negro Leagues to Major Leagues. They were part and parcel of this mm-hmm. announcement for Major League Baseball. And so you, you figure it's just foregone conclusion. They'll find a way to work together, whatever it takes. And uh, from there, Elias Sports Bureau can make its decisions, as official statistician, uh, as to how are we going to implement this? Do we count barnstorming games? Do we count all-star games? Do we count series against white teams and because right now as we look at it as far as league games we're talking maybe 70 or 80 games some seasons and how does that stack up you know against major league seasons and so there are a lot of decisions that have to be made and now that you're not working with seam heads if we take them off the table then that's suddenly where you see well what is the alternative there's none currently there have been different projects at different points in time that kind of led up to seam heads but since seam heads started 15 years ago, they have really been the primary source for all of this. And they've put so much work into digging up original documentation of these games, what exists there. And now RetroSheet has to redo all of that. And so, Mm. um, yes, if you ask any researcher, and and currently it's RetroSheet doing it, to pull up this information is so much more difficult than some of the historical major league data, which itself is not all clean and easy to find. However, there was so much investment made into chronicling the stats, the stories of white baseball over the years. Mm -hmm. The league offices had a bunch of money and they kept big bound volumes that had all this information. The Hall of Fame has a ton of information. You know, beat writers from across the year would donate their box scores and score books from over the years. And for the Negro Leagues, it's now, what, 70 years later, trying to go back and, and unearth what was put only in a couple places at the time. Some of the Black Weekly newspapers have some stuff like that. But beyond that, it's all very scattered. And today, our, like the retro sheet standard I wrote in the story, the retro sheet standard is they want a play-by-play account of the whole game. You can recreate every game that way. And that's what they've done for all of their historical data with with all the Major League Baseball games going back you know, over a century. If you look at Baseball Reference and Fangraphs, the largest statistical sites we have out there, all of the historical data is based off of play-by-play accounts made by RetroSheet. This is a completely reputable organization. They've put a yeah. ton of work in. But when it came to the Negro Leagues, you don't have play-by-play data out there. They have it for maybe some of the big events, the World Series and Negro Leagues and things like that. But for just a an average league game, the, you are maybe going to get a line score and probably not even a box score for probably half of them. 
So what do you do with that? How do you really recreate true stats if all you know from this game is that Josh Gibson hit a home run mm-hmm. and his team won 3-1? to It's so incomplete, and that's not to say that white baseball was always perfectly complete, but it just is the truth about how to... Basically, like if you could unearth like one series or a few games, you could be really changing how we talk about a player. If you had a, a smaller sample of games or a season could go from a record-setting season of 450 batting average to, mm-hmm. you know, 430 if you find a couple games of sure. uh, offers. So there is so much incompleteness to it, and it's always going to be that way. And so that's kind of the challenge that you find that Seamheads has dealt with and RetroSheet will continue to deal with, but it's just going to be part of the conversation uh, forever with how Negro Leagues are compared to Major Leagues. Yeah, and I've always been fascinated. I'm sure a lot of people that look back on the, the rich history of baseball, not just Major League Baseball, but the Negro Leagues as well, there was always this aspect of like legend and lore that went with the Negro Leagues that, yeah, MLB has all of its legends and all of its lore as well, but there was just something that was a little bit more like uh, fantastical about some of the accomplishments. And did Josh Gibson hit 900 home runs? Will we ever find out? Will we ever know? Did Satchel Paige throw uh, 105 miles an hour? I don't know that that's necessarily a thing. Could Cool Papa Bell actually turn out the light and be under the covers before the room got dark? I mean, those were the kind of stories that you heard about these great Negro League players. And that a lot of that is just hyperbole and fun and all of that. But clearly the talent level was there. The games were happening and they were happening a lot. But it's really interesting for you to kind of lay out which games do you choose to look at as seasonal totals and how exactly do you come up with it? Because there's a big difference in, you know, maybe the competition that they were playing. Were they playing in league? Were they playing out of league? Were they playing against, say, the New York Yankees of the 1930s or something on a barnstorming tour over the course of the winter? There's just so much that goes into it. I'm fascinated, but to say it's a daunting job to parse through all of these stats and find a way to really be able to incorporate them to the fullest and best extent. I have a ton of respect for the researchers that are going to try to get this job done. Yeah, and I think that you would hope that Elias Sports Bureau, as it has this extra time here before they've even acquired data, has done a lot of work into deciding some of those things. Yeah. You know, They have their own database of Negro League games they're going to use to verify what they find, the original documentation from uh, RetroSheet, it looks like at this point. But there are some immense decisions that have to be made. And I think that's one place where with Negro Leagues, you really have to consider story right alongside of stats. Mm-hmm. What's the story that the fact that Josh Gibson was playing 78 games a season tells? Well, they'd had to do other stuff during the season. Why? Because Major League Baseball wouldn't let him play 162 games with them, or whatever the number was at that point. Yeah. Um, and so they barnstormed, or they had all-star games, or they had interracial series. And with so many of these numbers, they're not going to stack up numbers-wise. You're not going to have a Negro League player win you know, the all-time wins total or something, sure. uh, or home run total if we're not going to be able to find enough data from Josh Gibson beyond the lore of it. And so you know, historians have, have liked to look at rate stats to say, okay, maybe there's a better way to compare them. Uh, if you're comparing Satchel Page with Nolan Ryan and some of the greats, maybe you look at strikeouts mm-hmm. per nine innings from what the, sure. the data we do have. OPS for something like that, or home runs per at-bat for Josh Gibson to see sort of his greatness. And so there are ways to splice it. But yeah, these are decisions Elias will have to make. And they say they're going to make it in conjunction with some historians and some family members. But truly, that's so far off down the road that according to family members I've spoken to and historians I've spoken to, they aren't involved. So we'll have to see sort of what that process, what shape it takes and uh, when it begins. Yeah, you walked into my final question here as we wrap up with uh, Stephen J. Nesbitt of The Athletic here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. He's kind enough to join me here on the wadeford.com hotline. Uh, what is the general feeling or maybe the many feelings on the state of this process from those who have worked tirelessly on behalf of the Negro Leagues, You know, whether it be family members, historians, 
there's a responsibility not only to act in the game's best interest, but in the best interest with respect to the history and accomplishments of a league that never truly got its due in its day, among the many other concerns that, of course, go with this monumental task. Yeah, I think the concerns I heard from those outside of Major League Baseball was just a lot of surprise. With family members, I think with decent reason, felt like something was coming soon. They had never been given indication that this was going to take years. And mind you, it's taken two years already. It's not like it's just beginning. Like we, yeah. We're two years into the process and haven't heard anything. And then when you suddenly hear, not only are they still going, they're actually like kind of at the very beginning still. Like mm-hmm. they don't have the data. So we all thought the hard part was figuring out how to integrate it. We're not even there yet. And when I tell you, not only do they change providers, that provider will not have a product, a database and for at least five years. Wow. That's just telling you, okay, well, then we're at seven years. Then how long is it going to take them to integrate it? You know, can they do it alongside of when the, the data is being uncovered here? Maybe, but you could very easily see this going into the 2030s, right? You know, is it going to be done in seven years by the time we hit the end of the decade? And from researchers, it was, I think, frustration that this process has not been handled more transparently. MLB, I think, would argue it's been transparent. I don't think I would accept that argument very easily, nor would many people who have read the story today. But, you know, Larry Lester, one of the most reputable, recognized historians and and researchers of Negro League history, he said, you know, why aren't they putting out quarterly reports so that I'm not hearing this from a reporter who calls me up one day? I'm hearing it from the league that says, hey, we're working on it. Hey, we weren't able to get the data. This is a story I wouldn't have written if Major League Baseball had one of two things, either said from the beginning it was going to take possibly years and years, Mm -hmm. which would have been fine. If they just told us up front that, listen, this is really difficult to do and we're going to let you know when we're closer, but it's going to be potentially years from now. Or the second thing is just come out and be more transparent about, hey, here's where we are in the process. It's coming. It's important to us. It's a priority, but something changed and we have to sort of wait. I think people would understand. But in the message from Major League Baseball is more, I think, surprise and I don't maybe feigned surprise that people thought it would happen quickly. Hmm. I just think in conversation with those of the league, they don't think it's as big a deal as people are making of it. But I think maybe oftentimes when you're on the inside, your internal expectations, if they are not relayed to the public properly, they had a chance to set expectations and they didn't do that. They spoke from the beginning about how this was an important thing to get right. And despite not setting a timeline, I think they allowed people to assume it was going to happen more quickly than apparently they believed. Very interesting. I think you just hit, no pun intended, a home run with what the perception outside of the game or outside of the league is, often with the things that the league is trying to accomplish itself. They may have the internal expectation it's going to be a certain way. I'm not sure the general public always views it that way. But this is a process worth undertaking. I'm glad they've decided to do it. I look forward to seeing it brought to a conclusion as expeditiously as possible because this is one of the best causes that you will find from the historical integrity and perspective of all of baseball to have these stats alongside the contemporaries of their years in the major leagues as well. That, I think, the Negro Leagues most certainly deserves. Uh, He's Stephen J. Nesbitt of The Athletic. He wrote the article, The Negro Leagues are major leagues, but merging their stats has been anything but seamless. Check that out on The Athletic. Make sure you do that. I will link it as well on Twitter. Stephen, thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to chatting with you about the Negro Leagues or any other baseball things that might come down the pipe sometime soon. You bet. Thanks, Grant. When we come back, we'll take a look at everything that's coming up for the Braves in the week ahead. And I'll do it next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Wrapping things up on a Sunday on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Live from the Kia Studios as we... I come down the home stretch and I put a bow on what is a, I think, a gift, a present that everyone would probably like to return. And that was a three game stay up in Toronto for the Braves. It just simply 
did not go according to plan. The Braves swept by the Blue Jays, walked off on Sunday, and that will send them into Texas to face the Rangers with a four-game losing streak. That's something that the Braves have not had too terribly often. I mean, they had not been swept since way back in 2021. The Houston Astros pulled that off a few weeks ago. The Toronto Blue Jays were actually the last team that had swept the Atlanta Braves back in that 2021 season. In fact, they swept the Braves not once but twice, including once at Truist Park, once down in Dunedin, Florida, when the Blue Jays were playing at their spring training home at that time. But you know, that aside, the Braves have not been swept too many times. They have not had many losing streaks of three or more games, and they've currently got a four-gamer right now. Despite that fact, the Braves are 10 games over 500. And not only did the Braves lose again today, but the Phillies' winning streak came to an end as they had a very eventful loss against the Colorado Rockies. Some ejections in that game, some benches clearing, no big fights, no punches thrown, anything like that. I don't know if the highlights will be altogether that exciting unless you like to see guys run out of the bullpen and then go back to the bullpen a little bit slower. But the Phillies also lost to the Colorado Rockies. So a five-game lead for the Braves in the NLE standings as we sit here on a Sunday evening. Uh, Miami Marlins, uh, New York Mets were also in action. Uh, so all of that pending, of course, and we'll roll into Monday and have a better idea. But I can tell you this, uh, while the Braves did lose all three games in a very, very frustrating series against the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, the sun will come up tomorrow conceivably. And if it doesn't, we've got much bigger problems than what the Braves did today. And they are going to figure out a way to win a baseball game again. You'd like to see it happen sooner than later. And what better time than Monday? You start a new series. You know, Hopefully the Braves can get the bats going in a place that is, I think, pretty hitter-friendly uh, out there in Arlington, the new ballpark for the Rangers. And you got Charlie Morton on the mound, and you heard from him a little bit earlier in the show. And I think Charlie has started to look a little bit more like his old self. And that would go a long way right now because, as we talked about earlier on, as we kind of get into our Braves discussion to round us out for the day, the Braves are going to need Charlie Morton. They're going to need Spencer Strider, Bryce Elder to step up. They're going to need the bullpen to be able to find a way to kind of normalize again and get back to doing what I think it was designed, you know, the group that they brought, you know, broke camp with is capable of doing once you got Rysel Iglesias back, especially. But we've seen some struggles from Iglesias. We've seen a lot of struggles for A.J. Minter. We've seen some other games that have, uh, you know, gone up and down. But I think perhaps no pitcher uh, really is more synonymous with the Braves' struggles this year than A.J. Minter. And I talked about him a lot earlier. The Braves are simply going to need him to get things turned around, to get things figured out. But how can you do that in the midst of, you know, asking him to cover high leverage and, and important innings? And A.J. didn't throw on Sunday, so it wasn't him uh, this particular day, but it was another bullpen game for the Braves. And that in particular is something that the Atlanta is going to have to figure out moving forward with no Max Freed and with no Kyle Wright. And that's the life that they're going to have to lead for at least a month, if not more, is what it sounds like for both those men. Uh, meanwhile, Marcelo Zuna continues to heat up here in the month of May. And it's starting to look a lot more like not just a good series in Miami a little while back, not just some mirage out in the desert, which the last couple of years, as far as production has been concerned, has felt a little bit like wandering in the wilderness for Ozuna. He has reached base by a hitter a walk in 11 straight games. He's got five home runs this month, an OPS over 1,200. And more than that, the results are really starting to look like he has truly figured some things out at the plate. His walk rate this year is up. His chase rate is down, if you go look at the StatCast info. And with the struggles of some others, this is certainly good timing for Marcelo Zuna. I mean, at some point, you got to figure he was playing for his job, not just playing for, I, I want to get some at-bats and I, I want to be you know, getting regular playing time, but the question was going to come, I think, on a roster crunch of sorts as the Braves were dealing with getting some of their injuries sorted out. When Orlando Arcia came back, that was a, a boost for the Braves as far as the infield defense is concerned, but... And as I said earlier, and I'm not going to sit here and belabor the point, but Sunday was not the day to talk about defense for the Atlanta Braves, and I really don't know what the deal was with that. 
I just know that we're all probably better off forgetting that it ever happened and hoping that we never see it again. That's just not characteristic of the way that the Braves have played. I mean, you make a mistake here or there. You have that one play in the series that you're like, oh, I wish that had you know, gone better or I wish you could have made that play or, man, you didn't make that play and that's what led to this, this, and this. I, I can understand that. But when you have four of them in one day, I don't really know what to do with all of that because you haven't really seen the Braves play that kind of baseball in about, I don't know, five, six years. I can remember a game in 2017 out in Los Angeles against the Angels with Bartolo Colon on the mound and that one was, uh, and, and all of those things ought to just remind you just how far the Braves have come, by the way, the Braves playing with Bartolo Colon on the mound. That's been a minute. But I haven't seen too many games like I saw on Sunday. But what we have seen from Marcelo Zuna here in the month of May is what you need to see when you consider that some other components of this lineup, and in particular some very big names, have been having a very hard time thus far this season. And I don't think anybody is having a – a rougher go of it lately than perhaps Austin Riley. But if it's not Austin Riley, it might be Matt Olson. And I talked about Riley and looking inside the StatCast info as to what exactly might be ailing him and what exactly is not going right for Austin Riley. And you may say, tongue-in-cheek, well, nothing's really going right for him. He's not hitting home runs. You know, he's not driving the ball with any sense of, you know, regularity. But as I looked going into the game on Saturday at the StatCast data, I mean, there's some stuff that really just jumped off the page year over year. And nothing to me is more indicative of some of the struggles he's had this year than the fact that he's not hitting the ball hard consistently in 104 batted ball events, according to StatCast, heading into Saturday's game. Austin Riley had seven barrels. I don't think that he barreled a baseball yesterday or today, but I'd be happy to be wrong, and maybe that would make eight, but... Austin Riley was one of those guys in in the top 10% of all of baseball in terms of hard hit contact, consistently hard hit contact, average exit velocity, max exit velocity, and the max velocity is still there, which tells me his swing is not altogether broken. But this launch angle has also been an issue because the difference in, say, what Ronald Acuna Jr. is doing and what Austin Riley is doing is that Ronald is hitting the ball hard consistently on the ground and is able to beat it out whereas Austin is not hitting the ball hard on the ground. He's just hitting it consistently on the ground, and that's something that's just not going to work. So if you look at it, career low launch angle and barrel percentage, as I mentioned, his sweet spot percentage, which pretty much goes hand in uh, hand hand with the barrel percentage, you know, hitting the ball or hitting it on the bat where you want to right there in the sweet spot, that's a career low. And his hard hit percentage is just off of 2020 for the lowest in his career. And just the seven barrels in probably 110 or so better ball events at this point is baffling. A lot of it's baffling. His exit velocity on the average is pretty much right in line with where he was during his 2021 breakout season. So I can't say that he's not hitting the ball hard at all, but he's not hitting it hard enough to be able to provide the kind of production that the Braves need out of the third spot in the order. And I had a lot of people asking me on Twitter. You can follow me at Grant McCauley. You can find me there and, We can talk about the Braves and all of these things, and good, bad, or indifferent, we'll try to get to it. You had to wonder when Austin Riley might get moved out of that third spot in the order. Not that he may not see it again, but that if you've got somebody that's having this much of a struggle driving the ball and hitting it hard consistently and being able to be a run producer for you, maybe just a little bit of of movement in the order might get him kick-started, take a little bit of that pressure off. And I talked about this earlier, and I don't know that there's a correlation with it because clearly it's not going to completely change his swing or fix everything that might be ailing him. He's had more success batting fourth than he has batting third over the course of his career. 
What are the reasons for that? I don't really know. I don't know that, again, that there's an easy explanation for that. And it's not going to be, oh, well, he had one conversation with Chipper Jones and that fixed all the things with his swing that you know might be needed. Because Chipper Jones, as you know, a wealth of knowledge and an incredible you know, uh, sounding board for Braves hitters, you know, he can't be expected to fix everybody's swing and turn him back into you know, an MVP caliber player. That is inside Austin Riley. And, and unfortunately for him, for a guy like A.J. Minter, a lot of times you get into this stuff in the season and you just have to hit your way out of it. You have to play your way out of it. You have to pitch your way out of it. And that just kind of is what it is. You can't just be sending everybody to the minor leagues or to the end of the bench until you need them in, what, a key place or a key time in the game and they haven't played in a week. That's not really going to play too well. But uh, be that as it may, it's not just Austin Riley who has struggled. We've also seen some struggles out of Matt Olson here in about the last three or four weeks. And I went back and looked at this prior to the game on Sunday. And Matt Olson, who was 0 for 4 with a walk and a couple of punch outs on Sunday, so throw that in here, but came into Sunday batting 171 since April 17th with the most strikeouts of any National League hitter. He's now got 34 of those in his last 108 plate appearances. That includes Sunday's game. And that's also the third most strikeouts in all of Major League Baseball over that three-and-a-half or so week sample. And I know three-and-a-half weeks is not typically something that you look at and say, oh, last 30 games, last 10 games, last whatever, but it's been going on for a while here. He's walking a lot as he's got 22 walks over this last, what, three-and-a-half weeks. Only Juan Soto has drawn more walks over that time, and Juan Soto's pretty good at drawing a, a free pass. Matt Olson's done that, but he's, he's morphed into just this three-true-outcomes hitter that has been very much not exactly who he was in Oakland. There were always going to be some strikeouts. He was always going to draw some walks. But for whatever reason, and it's strange that in a year in which the shift has been limited, that maybe you would have thought, okay, a few more of these base hits will start to come his way. It's really been a lot more strikeouts. And that strikeout rate is something that, you know, that's going to have to come down eventually. And I do a lot of these on-pace graphics and and tweets about Ronald Acuna Jr. for his 40-40 chase, which, by the way, on pace for 32 homers, 69 stolen bases right now, as I mentioned on the show a couple of weeks ago. Two players in baseball history have had 30 homers and 50 or more steals, and that's Barry Bonds and Eric Davis. So if Ronald's able to do that, maybe start shining up that MVP trophy for him. But there's a lot of baseball left to be played. But when you start to look at on pace for some other players, Matt Olson with a 200-plus strikeout season is not exactly what you would have expected, especially out of your number two hitter. So at some point, I think it's going to normalize. But this has been about three weeks where the difference in Matt Olson and Austin Riley, though, is when Matt hits the ball hard, he is producing runs. He is still hitting home runs. He is still driving the ball. It's just been a little bit harder putting bat on ball. But when you put the two of them together right after Ronald Acuna Jr. is getting on base at a 400-plus clip, it just starts to make you wonder, Ozzie Albies has been hitting the ball pretty well for the last three and a half weeks. Would Ozzie fit in the three spot? And the answer to that on Sunday against a lefty was, yes, absolutely he will. Sean Murphy, player of the week in the National League a week ago. Congratulations to him. Could he fit in the number two spot for a little while? Just to shake things up a little bit, and you could maybe bump Matt Olson and Austin Riley down for a little while, but it's hard to make these wholesale changes, and I understand why Brian Snitker doesn't do that, because you don't want to be a reactive manager. I mean, you want to be as proactive as you can. If you knew when a guy was going to go in a slump, well, yeah, you probably wouldn't give him 10 days' worth of at-bats to go through the worst part of his season. I mean, if, if it was that easy, everybody would be able to do it. It ain't that easy, though, but you're managing the people, and one thing I think baseball players appreciate perhaps more than any other athlete is consistency. They like to know, okay, this is where I hit. This is where I play. This is what I'm doing. You know, this is where I am in the lineup. 
You know, I know that the last series hasn't gone the way I want to, the last 10 days, last two, whatever the amount of time you want to put on it is, but my team still has faith in me. My manager's still putting me out there. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to hit my way out of this. If you don't have that mentality, you're not going to make it very far in Major League Baseball or probably in any sport. But that aside, I do think that Matt Olson, Austin Riley, they're going to hit their way out of this whole thing. It's good to see Marcelo Zuna, Ozzy Albies, Eddie Rosario. All of these guys are hitting the ball pretty well. It's great to have Michael Harris back. Welcome back to Travis Dardo, who's off the injured list after missing a month due to that concussion. Those are things that are going to help the Braves, I think, get right overall. And, of course, Orlando Arcia being back in all of this, that's going to help out as well. As for the Braves and what's coming up this week, you got three games against the Texas Rangers, all of them 8.05 p.m. Eastern starts. Then you got an off day on Thursday and more. American League Baseball will follow. We're going to get a look at the Seattle Mariners. They come to Truist Park this coming weekend. That's going to wrap us up for from the Diamond this week. I appreciate, as always, the work of Dom behind the glass, keeping this show going. And, of course, thanks to Stephen J. Nesbitt of The Athletic for dropping by to talk about the Negro League statistics and where those stand in the Major League Baseball record books. Hopefully, they're going to be in there sooner than later. And my thanks, as always, to you for making From the Diamond part of your baseball podcast regimen. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and the Odyssey app. That'll wrap us up for this week. As always, I'm Grant McCauley. This is From the Diamond, and we'll catch you next week. So long, everyone. Thank you.